Issues Etc. regular guest, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, is the author of our Book of the Month for February. It's titled, Without Flesh. What does the church have to offer the world in this present darkness? Find out in Without Flesh. It's published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040, or browse before you buy at issuesetc.org. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February, Without Flesh, by Pastor Jonathan Fisk. We know where baptism came from. It was given to us by Jesus. It was prefigured in the baptism of John the Baptist, a promise being made about a fulfillment of that baptism that would bring the Holy Spirit and faith in Christ that would point toward Jesus Christ. Christ comes and fulfills this, and in the last chapter of Matthew, he tells the church to make disciples by baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. But how did the first disciples, the apostles, and the church put that into practice? Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Our series on Lutheran Catechesis continues. We're going to pick up a conversation with Pastor Peter Bender on baptism in the New Testament, and we'll get to the baptismal rite as well. Pastor Peter Bender is pastor of Peace Lutheran Church in Sussex, Wisconsin, and director of the Concordia Catechetical Academy. Peter, welcome back. Thanks, Todd. Good to be with you. So you wanted to discuss, in kind of more Acts terms, the ministry of holy baptism. Yeah, I think we've laid the foundation now through these uh, six texts that we've gone through from Mark's Gospel and now through Ephesians 4. And bearing in mind, again, what we highlighted in that Ephesians 4, that there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. The first text is Peter's conclusion to his sermon on Pentecost. Acts 2, 38 and 39, and we've dealt with this text before as we've talked about the benefits of baptism, the promise of baptism. But Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. So the first point here I'd like to make, Todd, is that clearly and unmistakably, according to Peter's words, baptism promises the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, he says this promise of baptism, of forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit, is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off. There is a universal embracing of humanity in the call of the gospel and in the promise of baptism. In other words, he does not say the promise of remission of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit is to those who have come to the age of accountability or to those who have made a decision for Christ and are mature in their faith. No, the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off. I mean, think about this. These are Jewish pilgrims from all over the Mediterranean. And clearly, (laughs) they would have had a background of 
catechesis that ran the gamut from being well catechized as Jewish faithful believers looking for the hope of the Messiah and those who were less so well catechized. But they all gather there speaking different languages out of the countries from which they are born. They hear this sermon of of Peter and the other apostles. They're cut to the heart by the word of God. What shall we do? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And they were, they're baptized. That day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. And those pilgrims who went on these pilgrim feast journeys to Jerusalem from around the Mediterranean, these would have been entire families, a husband, a wife, a father and mother, and their children. And so Peter's promise here that it is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off highlights the universal character of the call of the gospel and the promise of baptism. And the idea that only the adults, only the intellectually enlightened, only the mature would have come to receive this baptism is absolutely absurd. Just as when John ministered baptism at the Jordan River, there is no indication whatsoever that it was only mature adults who had reached the age of accountability and made a decision for Christ that came to him and were baptized. And now you little children, you stay here on the on the banks of the Jordan, and we'll be back in a few minutes after John baptizes. This is there, there is simply no indication of any such thing in the New Testament whatsoever. And this promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call, indicates that. So the final point I'd make on this passage is that Peter's promise of holy baptism, I think, runs in continuity with the ministry of John the Baptist that we've been discussing earlier. Acts chapter 8, the account of Philip and the Ethiopian. Acts chapter 8. The eunuch answered Philip. Philip had been directed to overtake this chariot. The Ethiopian eunuch was a proselyte from Ethiopia to the uh, faith of the Old Testament and looking for the promised Messiah. He had been in Jerusalem and he had been worshiping there and he is returning to Africa, the country of Ethiopia, where he served under Queen Candace as a treasure. And he is clearly a man of some means. Perhaps it's because he was the treasure of uh, the Queen of Ethiopia that he is reading from the scroll of Isaiah, which would have been uh, pretty... uh, awesome thing to be able to have afforded the scroll of Isaiah. And he's reading from Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant. uh, And we've talked about that text in conjunction with Jesus' baptism, wherein the sins of the world were laid upon him. And so the eunuch says to Philip, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or some other man? And Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Beginning with this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. I love how Luke records this. He preached Jesus. That is about a short a way to refer to Christian preaching as you can get. But embodied in the name Jesus is everything Jesus is as the Son of God, the Lamb of God, and all that he has done for us. He preached Jesus to him. It is really in keeping with the same thing that John did. John the Baptist preached Jesus to the people when he called them to repentance. This Jesus is Son of God and Redeemer. And then 
at the end, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay, so he preached Jesus to him. And as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Now, I think this is significant with what is not spoken of in the narrative. When it says in Luke's text, reporting these events, that Philip preached Jesus to him. Todd, you can't preach Jesus unless you're preaching the whole counsel of God's word, which includes the sacrament of holy baptism and what baptism promises and offers. Remember early on in our discussion some time ago, we talked about how people object to the notion it's not baptism that saves, it's Jesus. Well, it's pitting two things against each other that you can't pit against each other because the content of baptism is Jesus. So to say it's not baptism that saves, it's Jesus that saves is like saying it's not Jesus that saves, it's Jesus that saves. And so it's it's clear here and implied by Luke's testimony of Philip's ministry to the Ethiopian that he was talking about baptism and how those who are brought to repentance, he offers them the promise of the remission of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the Ethiopian traveling with Philip saying, wow, the Messiah whom we've been waiting for, and I as a proselyte to the Jewish faith have been hoping for in my own lifetime has finally come. What hinders me from being baptized? Here is some water. And Philip just simply says, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, some who are listening may note, I'm reading from the New King James text, which is based on the majority text that the authorized King James Bible was translated from. And that verse 37 has material that's not found in a lot of the ancient manuscripts, specifically Philip's question or statement, if you believe with all your heart, you may, and the answer, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. Is it in the original of Luke? Is it not in the original? I'm going to say something that might sound shocking to people. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether it was in the original version of Luke or not. It reflects exactly the teaching of the New Testament all over the Gospels and the book of Acts, number one. And number two, it is reflective of what occurred in the baptismal rite from some of the most ancient of times, pressing back upon the apostolic era. The idea that What had Philip done? He had handed over the faith to the Ethiopian in Christ Jesus, in his catechizing, in his preaching of Jesus to him. And in these questions, it reflects what became part of the baptismal rite, Todd, from the earliest days, where the faith is handed over, and we do that when we hand over the Apostles' Creed, and then the faith is confessed by the one being baptized, and not only by the one being baptized, but by the church herself. So that's reflected. If you believe with all your heart, you may, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he, that is Philip, commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Pastor Peter Bender is our guest, director of the Concordia Catechetical Academy. It's our series on Lutheran Catechesis. We're talking about baptism in the New Testament. A little bit later, the baptismal rite is Philip's practice carried over by St. Paul. We'll find out next.
Preach the gospel at all times. Use words when necessary. I prefer St. Paul who says faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And that's what the February issue of the Lutheran Witness is all about, hearing and believing. It includes articles about hearing with your eyes, singing the gospel, listening to the word of God in sermons, and proclaiming the gospel in foreign lands. Visit cph.org witness to subscribe today. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the contemporary world from a Lutheran perspective. cph.org witness. Lutheran Talk. We have an ecumenical responsibility to hold forth the scriptures and to bear witness to grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Lutheran Music. Listen anytime, anywhere in 2020 with the Lutheran Public Radio mobile app. Download for iPhone, Android, and Kindle at issuesetc.org. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. You're listening to Issues Etc. The substitute organist service has been a great blessing for our worship life here at Christ the King Lutheran in Riverview, Florida. Pastor Kevin Yoakum on the substitute organist service. Now our organ plays rich liturgical music every single Sunday, and it's very affordable. You pick the hymns, you pick the liturgies. It's very simple. Just know when to push play. You can find out more about the Substitute Organist Service at churchmusicsolutions.com, churchmusicsolutions.com. Did you know that we send out an email each week that details upcoming show topics? It's available for you to include in your weekly church bulletin. Just click the Issues Etc. Journal logo at our homepage, issuesetc.org, and sign up to receive the church bulletin blurb. It's an easy way to invite your fellow parishioners to listen to Issues Etc., issuesetc.org. Look for the Issues Etc. Journal logo and register to receive a weekly bulletin paragraph from Issues Etc. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about baptism in the New Testament. Pastor Peter Bender is our guest. Pastor Bender, before the break, you were talking about the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip baptizing him in that famous account in the book of Acts. Is Philip's practice of baptism carried through to the Apostle Paul? Well, we had just talked about the ministry of Philip. He was acting as a pastor to the Ethiopian. The Ethiopian was a proselyte to the Jewish faith. Now we have Paul acting as pastor to the Philippian jailer and indeed his entire household. I mean, we're in Macedonia. It's Acts chapter 16, and there was no synagogue in Philippi. Uh, There was only a place where they gathered at the riverside for prayer on the Sabbath. That's how the Jewish community worshipped in Philippi. No regular synagogue there where the prophets and the law and the prophets were read. So here, Paul was arrested along with Silas, and they are imprisoned there. And it's very interesting to note how they are praying and singing hymns throughout the night, which would have been done out loud and no doubt witnessed, at least in part, by the Philippian jailer, as well as by those in the prison. And after the earthquake, and the Philippian jailer would have been responsible if any of the prisoners had escaped, and he's about to take his own life, Paul called with a loud voice and says, do yourself no harm. We are all here. 
which I think is a miracle in and of itself that the preaching, the praying, the singing of Paul and Silas resulted in not only did they not leave, but the fellow prisoners did not leave. We're all here. Do yourself no harm. And he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? There can be no doubt, Todd, that that question was not asked in a vacuum, wherein Paul and Silas, complete strangers, as if he has no sense of what they were preaching or teaching or confessing. Quite the contrary. Now, he didn't believe prior to Paul and Silas being jailed, but that they're there, that they remained there after the earthquake, that they didn't run away as any other prisoner would have done. It comes home to this Philippian jailer, if I may be so bold as to say, this gospel that they're confessing has got to be the truth. What must I do to be saved? And Paul says those famous words, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Notice, Todd, how those words reflect what Peter said on the day of Pentecost. Concerning baptism, you know, repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises to you and to your children. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says to the jailer. You will be saved, you and your household. See, it reflects the same pattern that we have seen laid out at the beginning of the book of Acts, now here in Acts 16. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him, Luke records, and to all who were in his house. So there was ongoing preaching and catechesis. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, for they had been flogged before their imprisonment. And immediately, he and all his family were baptized. Or it's literally, family is sometimes supplied in, this case, the New King James text. It says, immediately he and all his were baptized. So all who were connected to the jailer were baptized. And again, that is a response, if you will, to that promise that Peter made on Pentecost, that the promise of baptism is for you, your children, and all who are afar off. So all of the household, all who belonged to the jailer were baptized. And when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them. He rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. So a number of points, I think, are significant here. Paul is acting as a pastor for this jailer. I mean, he is on the precipice, isn't he, between heaven and hell, between life and death, between salvation and condemnation, as on the one hand, he's about to take his own life. On the other hand, hearing that they're all there, immediately it comes to him, this has got to be the truth, what must I do to be saved? So Paul simply directs him, faith has got to be in Christ. The object of faith is Christ, the one whom we are confessing, praying to, singing about. And it rescues the jailer, and they're taken into the house, and he baptizes the jailer and his entire household. Paul's baptism of the jailer and everyone in his house reflects the same practice as we've been seeing. Philip, Peter, throughout the book of Acts. Secondly, there is no restriction of age or nationality whatsoever found in any of these baptismal accounts in the New Testament. 
John the Baptist baptized entire households. Jewish pilgrim households were baptized by Peter on Pentecost. They journeyed from hundreds of miles away around the Mediterranean to worship their Passover and then Pentecost, and they're baptized by Peter on Pentecost. The Gentiles of Cornelius' household, we didn't take a look at that, but they were baptized by Peter. The Gentiles, now here, of the Philippian jailer's house were baptized by Paul and Silas. And in no case is there any restriction of age or any exclusion. The universal call of the gospel that salvation is for all in Christ is extended in baptism being offered to all. Third point, confessing faith in Jesus Christ enfolds the liturgy of baptism already in the New Testament. We see that with the Ethiopian eunuch that was baptized, and we see that here with Paul and Silas baptizing uh, the Philippian jailer. And finally, fourth on this text, did all who were baptized understand everything about the Christian faith? And the answer, I think, is by no means. Uh, Paul and Silas taught them, preached to them, they were baptized, and the preaching continued. I, I think it's lovely to ponder how this Philippian jailer and those of his house uh, were a part of that congregation at Philippi uh, that Paul addressed his famous epistle to. I, I think it's also important to note here, Todd, with respect to the Philippian jailer and then the Ethiopian eunuch and then those baptized on the day of Pentecost, you have a whole gamut of background knowledge and information. I mean, in the case of those baptized on Pentecost, you have faithful Jewish pilgrims who had grown up in the faith. They made their annual pilgrimages to Jerusalem to worship. So obviously, their knowledge of the Old Testament and of the scriptures was perhaps greater even than the Ethiopian eunuch, who had been a Gentile from Ethiopia, had been a convert to the Jewish faith, is now reading the scroll of Isaiah, and then Philip comes to him. And then you have the Philippian jailer. He's pure Gentile. Since there's no synagogue there in Philippi, he knows probably least of all, and yet not even he is denied baptism. And I think sometimes commentators and scholars want to say that there wasn't a need for extensive catechesis on Pentecost because, well, they had it all. They were, they were faithful Jews, so that's why they were baptized right away. I don't find that argument compelling in the slightest. It seems to me that the witness of the book of Acts is that as soon as the call of the gospel is heard and received, that baptism is not delayed but comes rather immediately, rather quickly, and then catechesis, ongoing catechesis, follows that. And I think that's instructive for us in the church today, that we treat adults like children and children like adults, and we don't delay baptism, but we understand the vital role that catechesis plays and the vital role that pastoral practice plays in trying to discern who should be baptized and who should be not and what the criterion are for that. And I think that is no better seen than in this peculiar event in Acts 19, where Paul comes across a disciple who is called a disciple who has been either miscatechized, but probably more likely not fully catechized, into both God and baptism. 
Acts 19, the so-called disciples at Ephesus, who had not heard of the Holy Spirit, has caused many scholars and pastors head-scratching fits. What is this all about? And I don't know, Todd, maybe it's the fact that I'm constantly thinking about pastoral theology and practice, even while I'm mowing my lawn and have been a pastor for well over 30 years. The question strikes me that if we as pastors ask pastoral questions of those we don't know that come into our congregation to discern what is their confession, uh, did they receive the sacrament of holy baptism or not, or were they a part of some sect? If we ask those questions, so we know what to do. Do we admit them to the altar or not? Is this person who claims to be baptized, have they actually been baptized or not? Do we administer baptism to them? Do we enroll them in further catechesis? Do we open the altar to them? If we ask pastoral questions in our age, why can't the apostles have asked pastoral questions in their age? And I think that's exactly what's going on here in Acts chapter 19. We'll just take the pertinent verses uh, 1 through 6. It happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. So this would be of Asia. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Now that response is key. We took a great deal of time looking through the Synoptic Gospels and the ministry of John the Baptist when he preached repentance and he baptized for the remission of sins. And in every case, John was constantly talking about the Holy Spirit and how the Messiah, whose way he was preparing, would be the giver of that Spirit, and that his baptism promised the gift of the Holy Spirit. So for them to have said to Paul, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit, is key. And it explains why Paul then says, into what then were you baptized? Had you been baptized by John the Baptist or his followers during his preparatory ministry for Jesus, you would have clearly understood the promised gift of the Holy Spirit that was associated with baptism. And they replied into John's baptism. Now, I think most commentators immediately think, well, then they were baptized by John the Baptist, so now they had to be rebaptized. Nothing could be further from the truth. It seems as if there was some sort of sect that continued to administer something that claimed to be, quote, John's baptism after John's ministry stopped and he was imprisoned and beheaded. This is why Paul goes on to say, in a sense, look, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Jesus Christ. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. It indicates that when they heard Paul catechize further on what John did in calling people to repentance, in proclaiming Christ, and when you look at Jesus as the Christ, when you look at the synoptic gospels, it was always then in the context of talking about the Holy Spirit. When they heard this, they realized, in essence, we were not baptized properly. 
And so they were baptized, and Paul baptized them. And he laid hands on them, and the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. And the men were about 12 in all. So just to recap this, first, Paul's question is a pastoral question. To ascertain whether or not these disciples, as they're so-called, received Christian baptism or not. I can think of, you know, someone coming into the congregation and, how do you do? Oh, we're a visitor from uh, Utah. Uh, have you been baptized? Oh, yes. Well, have they been baptized? Into whose name were you baptized? Where were you baptized? Did they use water? Well, we were baptized in the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. Well, then they need to actually be baptized, for the Latter-day Saints deny the Holy Trinity, and whatever it is that they received, it was not Christian baptism. Second point, the fact that they are ignorant of the Holy Spirit, again, clearly indicates they were not properly baptized, since both John the Baptist and the Apostles clearly catechized those they baptized, that the Holy Spirit was given in baptism and promised in baptism. Third, I said, notice how hearing about faith in Jesus, they were then baptized precisely because faith in Jesus Christ is the ministry of the Holy Spirit and is why the Holy Spirit is given. And finally, these disciples, upon hearing Paul's question, could have stated, oh, well, if that is what baptism is, then we were not baptized. So just to summarize briefly, these 12 individuals that Paul runs across in Ephesus thought they had been baptized with John's baptism, but in fact had not. Whatever they received was something masquerading as John's baptism. Whatever they received, it was a masquerade. And here's another pastoral point. How many times have you or I, when we were at seminary and so forth, been taught, if there's a doubt, baptize? Because we want to give that catechumen certainty. I have been baptized with water in the name of the triune God, in a church that confesses Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior, and confesses the Holy Trinity. We want to give that certainty. And clearly here, Paul is giving that certainty. And then this is an appropriate place then, I think, to talk about the laying on of hands and what is occurs a number of times in the book of Acts about had not yet received the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit falling upon the newly baptized by the laying on of hands is not to indicate that baptism is not promised, that the Holy Spirit is not promised in baptism or not given in baptism, or that the Holy Spirit is not at work through the call of the gospel in the Word of God. No, but rather the Holy Spirit falling upon the newly baptized makes visible the promise and reality of the gift of the Holy Spirit in baptism. It also further authenticates in the case, for example, of the Samaritans in the book of Acts receiving the gospel and coming to faith and being baptized for the first time. Then the apostles go there and through the laying on of hands, the outward manifestation of the spirit is given to sort of codify this is legit, that the Samaritans who had been hated by the Jews are brought into the church. So also here with these, in the book of Acts, chapter 19, these so-called disciples, through the laying on of hands, the manifestation of the signs of the Spirit are given to them. Not because the Spirit wasn't working in them through the Word to bring them to faith or wasn't promised them in baptism. No, but rather the signs of the Spirit make visible that gift of the Spirit. So Paul is in effect saying to them, 
had you been baptized with John's baptism, you would not only have heard about the Holy Spirit and been taught about the Holy Spirit, you would have received the Holy Spirit. Precisely. And that is a carryover from from what John had taught throughout all of the records by Matthew and Mark and John concerning his ministry. I mean, he talks about the Holy Spirit as much as he talks about Jesus. Then it further buttresses uh, Peter's promise on Pentecost, be baptized for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So their ignorance of the Spirit, total ignorance as they confess, indicates that something needs to be done about that. We need to be certain that these men are baptized into Christ Jesus so that they receive the full promise and certainty that baptism gives. It's part two of Baptism in the New Testament. We will turn to the baptismal rite itself with Pastor Peter Bender on the other side of the break. I'm Todd Wilkin. The Lutheran Reformers encouraged the mutual conversation and consolation of the brethren, and that's exactly what you'll find at our 2020 Making the Case conference. You'll have the opportunity to fellowship with Issues Etc. listeners and guests from around the world. This year's Making the Case conference is Friday, June 12th and Saturday, June 13th in Chicago. You'll find a conference schedule and you can register at issuesetc.org or give us a call 618-223-8385. The 2020 Issues Etc. Making the Case conference June 12th and 13th at Concordia University, Chicago. After the break, we'll get into the rite of baptism itself, and we will see very quickly that it's not an arbitrary outline. It actually proceeds in a very New Testament way. Stay tuned. We're supported by listeners like you. You're listening to Issues Etc. Repentance and forgiveness, sin and grace, law and gospel. More than cliches, real preaching for real people in need of hearing the real Christ. Christ for you in the divine service at St. Paul Lutheran Church of Hamill, Illinois, where we gather every Saturday night at 6 and on the Lord's Day, Sunday mornings at 7.45 and 10. Look for the Church of the Neon Cross on I-55 between exits 30 and 33. Find us on the web, stpaullutheranchurchhamill.org. St. Paul Lutheran Church of Hamill, where there is the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation for the people of God. Welcome back to Issues Etc. Pastor Peter Bender is our guest. We're doing a series with him on Lutheran Catechesis today, Baptism in the New Testament. We've walked through that material. We're turning to the baptismal rite itself. Pastor Bender, take us into the rite. Yeah, I I think it was so important for us to lay out so many of these texts on baptism because it does a lot to explain the rite, Todd. While we heard all about baptism, I think it's important to note that in those texts from the Synoptic Gospels, from John's Gospel, from the Book of Acts, it simply says things like, and they were baptized. It doesn't talk about rites. What we did see is a lot of preaching. We did see a lot of catechesis. So the first thing I'd like to say about the baptismal rite that we have today and that we use in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and the Lutheran Service Book Agenda is that we have to make clear that the essence of baptism, what it is, is water 
combined with God's word. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So when we talk about a valid baptism, it must have the element of water. It must have the word of God, which is the divine name of the Holy Trinity as Jesus instituted Trinitarian baptism in all of its fullness recorded in Acts 28. That's the essence of baptism that promises that baptism works forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation to all who believe. But having said that, the practice of baptism, the prayers, the gestures, the things that surround it, are not insignificant and do a lot to further catechize. So right administration of the sacrament of holy baptism, and the not R-I-T-E, but R-I-G-H-T, correct administration of the sacrament of baptism. We speak of this in the Augsburg Confession, that the church is found wherever the gospel is preached in its purity and the sacraments are rightly administered according to Christ's institution. Right administration of the sacrament includes catechesis and includes the kind of pastoral care that we saw in Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch, and that we saw in Paul with the Philippian jailer, and again with Paul and those who were baptized in Acts 19. So right administration of holy baptism includes careful catechesis and pastoral care. A couple of points in this regard. The congregation needs to be catechized. What is baptism? The congregation needs to to hear this in preaching and teaching, how the call of the gospel leads us to receive the gift of holy baptism. Baptism is not stapled on to Christian doctrine and practice, as if we can be Christian without baptism. It is central, or as if baptism is an idiosyncratic add-on to our doctrine. No, Our entire faith is baptismal, and the congregation needs to be catechized in this and understand her role in supporting baptism, in how baptism leads to catechesis and how people who begin to be catechized if they haven't been baptized are drawn to baptism. So that's part of right administration of holy baptism. Secondly, those bringing candidates for holy baptism need to be catechized. That would include parents. It would include sponsors. It would include members of the congregation who invite people they know to receive Christ. They need to be catechized to understand what baptism is, the role of catechesis, and how the gift of Christ's forgiveness and the Holy Spirit are given there. And then, of course, those being baptized need to be catechized prior to and following baptism. And there's follow-up ongoing catechesis that occurs. So I think sometimes the mistake is made that right administration of baptism is simply narrowly focused on water and the triune name. If that were the case, then we could drive through an African village with a fire hose on the back of a truck and just, you know, baptize these villages. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and why we've converted the entire town. No, baptism is never administered in isolation apart from the call of the gospel, catechesis, and ongoing catechesis. We're going to talk a little bit about the gesture, and there's an awful lot of gestures in the rite of baptism with Pastor Peter Bender in our series on Lutheran catechesis. Stay tuned.
Issues Etc. regular guest, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, is the author of our Book of the Month for February. It's titled, Without Flesh. What does the church have to offer the world in this present darkness? Find out in Without Flesh. It's published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040, or browse before you buy at issuesetc.org. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February, Without Flesh, by Pastor Jonathan Fisk. Concordia University Chicago is committed to keeping college affordable for all, and especially for LCMS Lutherans. We have scholarships available specifically for students who are LCMS members. This is Dr. Russell Dawn, President of Concordia Chicago, asking you to encourage your student to check out Concordia Chicago at cuchicago.edu. And if you are interested in supporting these scholarships, please find us online at foundation at cuchicago.edu. Contending for truth in an age of anti-truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. Come and experience firsthand by sitting down in classes and actually hearing professors. Coming to chapel, which is always the high point of the day, to hear the Word of God and to lift our voices in song. Issues Etc. regular guest Dr. Paul Grimm on why you should consider visiting Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Spend time talking to professors. I mean, there's not a professor here who will not be willing to, to take time, whether it's after chapel during the coffee hour or just to come into one's study and, and sit down and talk for a while, to answer questions, to you know, help them to get a sense of, A, you know, do they want to be a pastor or a deaconess? And then B, is this the right place? And well, maybe C would be the question, is now the right time for them to make that decision? If you've contemplated the vocation of pastor or deaconess, contact Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, 1-800-481-2155, 800-481-2155, or send an email to admission at ctsfw.edu. Did you know that many LCMS military personnel and their families are unable to receive word and sacrament ministry due to the lack of LCMS chaplains? Ministry to the Armed Forces is looking for pastors who will answer the call to serve as a chaplain to provide word and sacrament ministry to the men and women who selflessly serve our nation. Find out more about this exciting ministry by contacting me, Chaplain Craig Mueller, at lcmschaps at lcms.org. That is lcmschaps at lcms.org. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we'll study the spirit of truth. Jesus leaves his peace the true vine, greater love, hatred, and persecution. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, as we continue our walk through St. John's Gospel on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily verse-by-verse Bible study on demand at thewordendures.org and on the Lutheran Public Radio app. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about the rite of holy baptism in our series on Lutheran catechesis with Pastor Peter Bender, director of the Concordia Catechetical Academy. So, Pastor Bender, what do we need to know about the gesture in the baptismal rite? There's a lot of it in there, isn't it? There's a lot of it, and I, I think the movements and the gestures that are associated with the rite make visible some of the things that we've been highlighting doctrinally concerning baptism. First, the paschal candle historically is lit at every baptism. The paschal candle is that candle that signifies the death and resurrection of Christ, that he is the Passover, paschal lamb, 
who takes away the sin of the world, as John said. The Paschal candle is traditionally lit at the Easter vigil and remains lit throughout Eastertide. And then it is also lit at every Christian baptism and at every Christian funeral. So here it's lit at the baptism because we are baptized into Christ's death and resurrection. Second thing, from the entrance of the nave to the font. That's a movement. If you look at the baptismal rite in detail, it encourages uh, the pastor and the baptismal party at the beginning of the service to gather at the entrance to the nave. The nave is, and the entrance to the nave is the entrance to the church where the baptized faithful worship. So it's highlighting that in this liturgical movement. You meet at the threshold of the nave, and it's kind of the announcement of the purpose and so forth. And then through baptism, you are drawn into the body of Christ and are made a member of the baptized faithful. So there's movement from the entrance of the nave to the font, and it signifies that. When the baptismal party is at the font, the font is then the location of the new birth. And I think that is so wonderfully illustrated in the book of Acts that these people who were baptized were given certainty at their baptism. You think about the pilgrims on Pentecost, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Those who received the word were baptized. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, the breaking of the bread and prayers. So the font was the location of that new birth and the place where now I know I am a baptized child of God. I am baptized into Christ. I belong to him. And this is always the way it is. You know, I think I compare this to our own births, uh, natural births, Todd. You know, none of us celebrate the day of our conception. We all celebrate the day of our birth. And in a similar way, we are celebrating baptismal birthdays. And we remember, I know I'm a Christian because I was baptized. And when we understand that baptism is God's work, not our work, that becomes extremely comforting. The next gesture is that at the font, before the baptism takes place, the sign of the cross is made upon the forehead and upon the heart. The pastor says, receive the sign of the Holy Cross upon your forehead and upon your heart to mark you as one redeemed by Christ the crucified. That language has long-standing tradition, some of the oldest words in the baptismal rite. The heart is the place of faith. The head, the mind, is how the faith of the heart then is shaped in the way in which we think. So the baptismal life is there indicated by the sign of the cross upon head and heart, in token that we have been brought to faith in Christ, and this faith shapes the way in which we live. So already in that gesture, it indicates universal salvation for all, that Christ died for all, received the sign of the cross upon your forehead and heart that marks you as one redeemed, and how the baptismal life of faith is carried out in the way in which we think and the way in which we live and so forth. And that makes us think of another point in the service where the sign of the cross is made. And the pastor says, the Lord preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. 
indicating the baptismal life flows to and from the font. And he makes the sign of the cross uh, in the air prior to the baptism. And prior to the reading of Mark chapter 10, where there is the laying on of hands immediately after the gospel on Jesus' blessing of the children. So the idea is you, you hear he took them up in his arms and put his hands on them and blessed them, and then the pastor lays his hands on the candidate and says, Our Father, who art in heaven, directing the words of the Lord's Prayer to the baptismal candidate. And the words of the Lord's Prayer through the laying on of hands is significant. God's name is hallowed for this one in the waters of holy baptism, who by the name of the triune God is made a child of God. God's kingdom comes to this child through water and the word as the Holy Spirit brings this person to faith. So God's name is hallowed, his kingdom is coming, and the laying on of hands is always a symbol or sign of the word of God directed to that person. Then there's the actual baptism and the threefold application of water which signifies the gift of the Holy Trinity. The agenda says that regardless of how the water is applied, whether it's by sprinkling, by pouring, by dunking, it is a threefold gesture in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So that would even be if there was baptism by immersion, the threefold dunking. After the baptism, another gesture involving the laying on of hands, and it involves what is sometimes referred to as the confirmation, another very, very old part of the baptismal rite. It dates back to the ancient church, where the pastor places hands on the head of the newly baptized and says, the Almighty God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has given you the new birth of water and of the Spirit, and has forgiven you all your sins, strengthen you with his grace to life everlasting, and making the sign of the cross again. Then there is the white robe, which is a custom in some churches. That's of ancient origin. In fact, adult converts baptized in the ancient church would go into the water naked and come out clothed with a white robe, symbolizing the righteousness of Christ. And so in the Lutheran service book write, the words say, receive this white garment to show that you have been clothed with the robe of Christ's righteousness that covers all your sin. So shall you stand without fear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the inheritance prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Another symbol, the use of chrism oil, which is a scented oil, a perfumed oil, Oil, since Old Testament times, symbolized the gift of the Holy Spirit in the anointing of the priests and of kings and of prophets. And the use of oil would be made at this point in that confirmation. The Almighty God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has given you the new birth of the Spirit and has forgiven you all your sins, that's when it is applied with the sign of the cross after baptism. And it can be very significant. I've known of pastors who use the perfumed oil that was used at the confirmation portion of the baptism when they have visited the sick. And in the case of adult converts, the perfumed 
scent of that unique oil that was used at baptism brings back the memory of their baptism and their identity at the sickbed as they're anointed with oil to remind them of their baptism and as the pastor ministers to them. And then there is the baptismal candle, which may also be used in some churches. And the pastor could say, receive this burning light to show that you have received Christ, who is the light of the world. Live always in the light of Christ and be ever watchful for his coming that you may meet him with joy and enter with him into the marriage feast of the Lamb in his kingdom, which shall have no end. Now, Todd, there's a lot of these gestures that are customs and liturgical customs and that have long-standing use. It's not as if all of these things have to be done from the movement, from the entrance of the nave to the font or the giving of a candle or the use of chrism oil and so forth. But what they do is that they are intended to catechize and reflect to the congregation and to those who are visiting and to the baptismal party exactly what's taking place. And the richness of the rite is fitting and befitting of the richness of the theology of baptism. We're talking about the rite of baptism in our series on Lutheran Catechesis with Pastor Peter Bender. We have a new Issues Etc. book of the month. It's from Pastor Jonathan Fisk. It's called Without Flesh from Concordia Publishing House. The church has been trying to rethink how it does everything and how it believes everything for decades now. Maybe instead of trying to think of something new, we should think and remember of something old Starting with the words of Jesus, this is my body, this is my blood. You'll find out more in the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February, Without Flesh by Pastor Jonathan Fisk. Give Concordia Publishing House a call, 1-800-325-3040, and ask for the Issues Etc. Book of the Month. Or you can go to our website and browse before you buy, issuesetc.org. We'll get an outline of the rite of baptism with Pastor Peter Bender next. Lutheran Talk. We have an ecumenical responsibility to hold forth the scriptures and to bear witness to grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Lutheran Music. Listen anytime, anywhere in 2020 with the Lutheran Public Radio mobile app. Download for iPhone, Android, and Kindle at issuesetc.org. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Listen to chapel services live weekday mornings from Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. Morning Chapel from Kramer Chapel. Live weekday mornings at 9 Central, 10 Eastern, 8 Mountain, and 7 Pacific at issuesetc.org. If only we could see and hear what takes place in the divine service. The holy God's voice pours out eternal gifts. Sinners are washed in cleansing water that saves them from death. The Son of God gives his body and blood for us, the food of immortality. The church on earth blends her voice with angels and saints in glory to praise our God. 
These wondrous mysteries take place at Our Savior Lutheran Church in Stevensville, Montana, 184 Pine Hollow Road. Call 406-777-5625 or find us on Facebook. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Ad Crucem has crafted a series of posters to put what we believe, teach, and confess on display. See our Luther's Daily Prayers, the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, liturgical calendar, John 1 in Latin, and coming soon, the Athanasian Creed. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. Preaching Christ and Him crucified. You're listening to Issues Etc. We Lutherans were never aided by following along with some other traditions, theological priorities, and catchphrases. Issues Etc. regular guest, Pastor Heath Curtis, coordinator for stewardship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod on a Lutheran approach to stewardship. Other folks are not approaching it from our good, solid Lutheran understanding of law and gospel and vocation. There's a place to talk about this in Christianity, and we have a way of talking about stewardship as Lutherans without ever using the word stewardship, if you like. I'm going to talk to you today about your vocation in your home, in your church, in your society, and how each one of these makes a claim on you, on your presence, on your support, on your prayers. That's how we should talk about this as Lutherans. You'll find several stewardship resources at lcms.org slash stewardship, lcms.org slash stewardship. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about the right of holy baptism. Pastor Peter Bender of the Concordia Catechetical Academy is our guest, part of our series on Lutheran Catechesis. If you would, Peter, give us an outline of the rite of baptism. The rite begins in Lutheran service book with the invocation in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and then the address, and this would be done at the entrance. Dearly beloved, Christ our Lord says in the last chapter of Matthew, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In the last chapter of Mark, our Lord promises whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. And the Apostle Peter has written, Baptism now saves you. Now, interrupt the reading of that first paragraph to highlight the fact that Matthew 28 is quoted. Jesus' institution of baptism, Mark 16, the promise, whoever believes in Christ and is baptized into Christ uh, has the promise of salvation. And Peter's words, not from Acts, but this time from his epistle, baptism now saves you. As the water of the flood saved Noah and his family, baptism now saves you. And then the second paragraph of that address, the word of God also teaches that we are all conceived and born sinful and are under the power of the devil until Christ claims us as his own. We would be lost forever unless delivered from sin, death, and everlasting condemnation. But the Father of all mercy and grace has sent his Son, Jesus Christ, who atoned for the sin of the world, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I think it's important to note in this address, Todd, that 
there can be no doubt that those gathered for the baptism in the congregation, including and especially guests who may not be Christian at all, will hear in those words exactly what baptism is about and what the Christian faith is about. I should note also at this point that Lutheran Service Book Agenda includes an alternate rite of holy baptism based on Luther's rite. And the address is a bit shorter, but it concludes with what is sometimes called the exorcism of Satan, or I think it would be more appropriate to call it the rebuke of Satan. It says, the word of God also teaches that we are all conceived and born sinful and are under the power of the devil until Christ claims us as his own. Therefore, and here's the rebuke, depart you unclean spirit and make room for the Holy Spirit in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's an alternate form. It still reflects the language of the first form that I read, but it does do a lot to highlight the fact that before you are a Christian, you actually belong and are a part of Satan's realm. And Satan's realm is the kingdom of unbelief. And when you are baptized and brought to faith, you are translated from the kingdom of Satan, from unbelief, to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of faith in Christ. Luther would talk about how baptism draws a line in the sand against the devil and says of the baptized candidates, these now belong to me. So that's the invocation and address at the beginning of the baptismal rite. This is followed by, how are you named? And traditionally, although it is less done today, traditionally names were given in the Western church at the time of baptism. So that's the actual naming day of the child. It corresponds to the Old Testament naming on the eighth day of boys when they were circumcised. How are you named? And that name is the one used in the baptism. And typically, Todd, it is the first name and the middle name or names, but not the last name. That becomes somewhat significant if you think of girls whose name will change when they marry, you use what's called the Christian name. So my name is Peter Charles. The name Bender would not have been used in the baptism. Or if you have Elizabeth Ellen, my wife's name, her maiden name is Finky, that would not have been used. Now her last name is Bender, the Christian name. And so that name that is given here is the Christian name that is used then throughout the rite. And so the person is addressed. Peter Charles, receive the sign of the Holy Cross upon your forehead and upon your heart to mark you as one redeemed by Christ the crucified. From the naming and the signing of the cross, there is the movement into the prayer. In the first rite in LSB, it is only the flood prayer. In Luther's rite, there's both the flood prayer and another prayer which he includes. The flood prayer is extremely rich as it draws upon biblical theology from the Old Testament and then connects it to the New Testament. Listen to these words of the flood prayer. Almighty and eternal God, according to your strict judgment, you condemn the unbelieving world through the flood. Yet according to your great mercy, 
You preserved believing Noah and his family, eight souls in all. You drowned hard-hearted Pharaoh and all his host in the Red Sea, yet led your people Israel through the water on dry ground, foreshadowing this washing of your holy baptism. Through the baptism in the Jordan of your beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, you sanctified and instituted all waters to be a blessed flood and a lavish washing away of sin. Now let me pause there, Todd, to highlight how you notice how there was contrast, baptism going back into the Old Testament with the flood and the Red Sea crossing, both condemnation for the unbelieving world and salvation for Noah and his family, condemnation for the Egyptians, salvation for the Israelites. We could say condemnation and death and crucifixion for our old Adam, the salvation and the raising up of the new. And all of this is connected to Jesus, who in his baptism was designated the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And by his baptism, consecrated, instituted all waters to be a rich washing away of sin. The flood prayer then concludes with this paragraph. We pray that you would behold Peter Charles according to your boundless mercy and bless him with true faith by the Holy Spirit that through this saving flood all sin in him which has been inherited from Adam and which he himself has committed since would be drowned and die. Now let me pause here. Notice how the Holy Spirit is invoked, how God is invoked to give the very blessings that he himself promises. That's the true nature of prayer. We pray for those things that God himself has promised. It speaks of sin, both in terms of original sin and any commit sins committed since, that they all would be drowned and die, so that the gift of salvation given in baptism is full and all-encompassing. And now the prayer concludes. Grant that he be kept safe and secure in the holy ark of the Christian church. So as Noah and his family were saved through water in the ark, so we are saved through water in the ark of the church where we continue to be nurtured and kept in our baptismal faith. Being separated from the multitude of unbelievers and serving your name at all times with a fervent spirit and a joyful hope, so that with all believers in your promise, he would be declared worthy of eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You have a firm declaration of justification by faith, and that we are justified in our baptism as we are declared righteous for Jesus' sake. I think it would be cool to look at the uh, additional prayer that we have from Luther in the alternate rite. It's a shorter one. And he makes use of passages from Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, and so forth. O Almighty and Eternal God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray on behalf of your servant, Peter Charles, who asks for the gift of your baptism and desires your eternal grace through spiritual rebirth. Receive him, Lord, according to your promise. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find, knock, and it will be opened to you. Notice, Todd, that passage is employed here with respect to the promises of baptism, to the promises of the gospel, 
And I think all too many Christians think of that wonderful promise of Jesus, ask and it will be given, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened, as referring to I need a new job, I need more money, I need this, that, or the other thing. No, we, we need to be praying for those very gifts of salvation that he promises us in the gospel and that he offers to us here in the sacrament of holy baptism. So that prayer concludes, now give your blessing to him who asks and open the door to him who knocks so that he may obtain the eternal blessing of this heavenly bath and receive the promised kingdom that you give through Jesus Christ our Lord. The next portion in the right is an optional portion. It is the enrollment of sponsors. And it's optional. I remember working with the agenda committee on the right, and our concern was that uh, we could make the right so incredibly long that it would take a lot of time in the divine service to do the entire right. But even more than that, we had a pastoral concern that sponsors be treated more significantly than simply showing up on a Sunday morning to witness the baptism of the candidates they sponsor. So there is the opportunity to meet with sponsors prior to the baptism, perhaps a day or a week before, and to talk to them about the theology of baptism and the responsibility as sponsors. But in any case, it is given here in the right as an option. And it says, from ancient times, the church has observed the custom of appointing sponsors for baptismal candidates and catechumens. In the Evangelical Lutheran Church, sponsors are to confess the faith expressed in the Apostles' Creed and taught in the small catechism. They are, whenever possible, to witness the baptism of those they sponsor. They are to pray for them, support them in their ongoing instruction and nurture in the Christian faith, and encourage them toward the faithful reception of the Lord's Supper. They are at all times to be examples to them of the holy life of faith in Christ and love for the neighbor. I think it's clear, Todd, from that paragraph in the enrollment of sponsors that we're talking about Christians. We're talking about practicing Lutheran Christians who confess the faith. We're talking about mature Lutheran Christians who can actually pray for and support and speak to those they sponsor about the Christian faith, encouraging them in their catechesis, praying for them at all times, and encouraging them toward faithful reception of the Lord's Supper. And I think this enrollment of sponsors is excellent to be used. There's a separate right, actually, for that in the agenda. But it's appropriate to be used not only for sponsors for children, but even and especially for sponsors for adults. And I think it is quite proper, following the example of the book of Acts, that when adults are baptized, that they're not only assigned sponsors, but that those sponsors might be going with them to catechesis toward their confirmation and reception before the altar. So the pastor in the enrollment of sponsors then will ask after having announced what these sponsors do, and if it's a separate rite done outside of the baptism, the pastor can give the catechism to the sponsor, can talk more fully about the catechetical life of the parish that this baptismal candidate will be a part of, and how those sponsors can also share in that. But at any rate, the pastor asks the question, is it your intention to serve Peter Charles 
as sponsors in Christian in the Christian faith? Answer, yes, with the help of God. God enable you both to will and to do this faithful and loving work, and with his grace, fulfill what we are unable to do. So that's the enrollment of sponsors. Following this is the reading of the Holy Gospel according to St. Mark. They brought young children to Jesus that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And immediately the pastor lays hands on the baptismal candidate and the congregation joins with him in praying the Lord's Prayer on behalf of the candidate. Following this, the Lord preserve your coming in and your going out from this time forth and even forevermore. And then we're led into the confession of the Christian faith, which has two parts. The ancient renunciation of Satan and all his wicked works and all his wicked ways, followed by the pastor asking the three articles of the Apostles' Creed. In a way, this is handing over the faith to the candidate as Philip did to the Ethiopian eunuch. And then the response to all of these questions, I renounce the devil, all his wicked works, all his wicked ways, I renounce them, I renounce them, and yes, I believe in God the Father, yes, I believe in God the Son, Yes, I believe in God the Holy Spirit. Do you desire to be baptized? Yes, I do. And those words are spoken either by the sponsors, giving audible voice to infant faith, or by the adult catechumen who is to be baptized, who gives voice to their faith. And then the pastor pours water three times on the head of the candidate while saying, Peter Charles, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. This is followed then by various things, depending on the congregation, certainly the confirmation blessing that we spoke of, a white garment may be used, the candle, and then a welcome by the congregation and prayers. The rite concludes with the pox. Peace be with you. Amen. Talking with Pastor Peter Bender about the rite of baptism. On the other side of the break, why do we keep records of these things? Why do we require a public recognition of baptism? Stay tuned. We need to be able to articulate from the scriptures very simply the clarity and the confidence of the doctrine that that there is one God and that God the Father is God and God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, is God and God the Holy Spirit is God. Pastor Brian Wolf Miller talking about his presentation at the 2020 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. And we want to make that case with a simplicity that comes from the Scripture and we want to consider then the beauty of what it means to worship the Holy Trinity. You can meet and hear Pastor Brian Wolf Miller making the case for the Trinity at the annual Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference Friday, June 12th and Saturday, June 13th at Concordia University, Chicago. 
Pastor Wolf Miller will be joined by Dr. Robert George, Mark and Molly Hemingway, Pastor Hans Feeney, Dr. Albert Moeller, and Pastor Will Whedon. Find out more and register at issuesetc.org or by calling 618-223-8385. Providing artillery support for the church militant on the front lines, you're listening to Issues Etc. Many Lutheran pastors outside of the U.S. receive little or no seminary education. Luther Academy provides theological triage through conferences, books, and journals. Help support Luther Academy by making a tax-deductible donation at lutheracademy.com or call 260-452-2211. Serving Lutheran pastors to the ends of the earth. Luther Academy, 260-452-2211 or lutheracademy.com. Looking for a foreign language program that will revolutionize your students' vocabulary knowledge and their understanding of grammar? How about a program that teaches critical thinking skills, too? Look no further than Memoria Press's Latin curriculum. Students of all ages can use these Latin study programs. Give your students the gift of Latin today. To order, visit memoriapress.com and save $5 on your next order by using the coupon code LPR20. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ, teaches St. Paul. But what about those who cannot hear? Can they be saved? The February issue of The Lutheran Witness illuminates this topic and others, including hearing the gospel while singing the faith, how to listen to sermons, and proclaiming the gospel in foreign lands. Come, learn how the church confesses the word in words. Visit cph.org slash witness to subscribe today. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the contemporary world from a Lutheran perspective. cph.org slash witness. If you appreciate Issues Etc., Talk Radio for the Thinking Christian, and Lutheran Public Radio, Sacred Music for the World, please include a bequest in your will or trust for these worldwide media resources. Bequests aren't subject to federal tax or capital gains taxes. Ensure your children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren the opportunity to listen by including a bequest in your will or trust for Issues Etc. and Lutheran Public Radio. University of Texas Chamber Singers with the Epiphany Hymn, I Want to Walk as a Child of the Light, playing right now on our 24-7 sacred music station, Lutheran Public Radio. Here's what Anne wrote recently about LPR. Thank you for your wonderful Holy Spirit-inspired music through Epiphany. I am Anglican, and I have appreciated all the music. Thanks for listening, and thanks for the feedback, Anne. You can listen to sacred music for the Epiphany season anytime, anywhere, at lutheranpublicradio.org and on the LPR mobile app. We're talking about the rite of holy baptism and baptism in the New Testament as part of our Lutheran Catechesis series with Pastor Peter Bender, pastor of Peace Lutheran Church in Sussex, Wisconsin, and director of the Concordia Catechetical Academy. 
Peter, why do we announce a baptism? and Why do pastors keep records of baptisms? There is the encouragement that the rite of baptism should be done in the presence of the congregation, but oftentimes that's not able to be done. In the case of a child who is born and there's an emergency and the child is baptized in the hospital, I baptized uh, my identical twin granddaughters at about 2.30 in the morning on July 18th, several years ago, and sometimes parents have had to baptize in the hospital NICU right after baptism because there's a threat to life and they they desire rightly to receive the comfort and the assurance that baptism gives. But this is a public act and it ought to be acknowledged so. And there is a rite of public recognition done before the congregation. And let me just share this with you. There's two options. The first is for a baptism administered by a layman. So you could say Peter Charles was unable to be baptized in the presence of the congregation by a called and ordained minister of Christ, that we may have the certainty that he was baptized on May 12, 1961, by this particular individual who is named with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, you have come to attest to his baptism in the presence of the congregation. Before the Lord and his church, I now ask you, was this baptism administered as has been reported? Yes. The other option is for a baptism administered by a pastor, in which case on May 12, 1961, Peter Charles was baptized with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, according to Christ's institution and promise. The baptism was administered at St. Luke's Lutheran Church by me, the Reverend Smith. The baptism was witnessed by, and then those people are named, do you attest that this baptism was administered, as has been reported? Then answer, yes. Yes, we do. Why is this important? It's for the sake of certainty. It's, it's why Paul had to ask these questions of those so-called disciples in Acts 19 to ascertain were they really baptized. So baptismal certificates need to record the name of the person baptized, the date of the baptism, where it took place, and who were the witnesses to the baptism. This is why if sponsors are unable to be present, there should be witnesses chosen to be proxy sponsors who are witnessing the fact that baptism took place with water in the name of the triune God. And what we do in our congregation is after the baptism takes place, we sign the baptismal certificates myself and those who are the official witnesses of the baptism, and then we make copies of that for the baptismal candidate, the family, the sponsors, and we keep a couple of copies on file at the church so that years later they can come back and find out, was this person baptized in the name of the triune God and with water? It's actually one of the most important things that a pastor does. And going back to the Acts 19 passage, the point here is to give certainty. You wanted to conclude at least this part of our conversation with a Luther hymn, To Jordan Came the Christ Our Lord, the seventh stanza. The Luther hymn is a wonderful hymn that ties together the baptism of our Lord with the theology of baptism. And this seventh stanza is a fitting, apt conclusion to our discussion of the baptismal rite and indeed the theology 
and pastoral practice of baptism in the book of Acts. All that the mortal eye beholds is water as we pour it. Before the eye of faith unfolds the power of Jesus' merit. For here it sees the crimson flood to all our ills bring healing, the wonders of his precious blood, the love of God revealing, assuring his own pardon. Pastor Peter Bender is pastor of Peace Lutheran Church in Sussex, Wisconsin. He is director of the Concordia Catechetical Academy. Peter, thank you. Thank you, Todd. We have so much in baptism that Christ has given us. And the reason that the church is so careful about it, so conscious of it, so intentional about it, is because we are handling holy things. We are doing the work of the Lord, literally, our hands, pastor's hands, are applying that water in the name of the only true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And through that, God brings the dead sinner to life. He gives them eternal life and seals them for the resurrection in the death of Jesus Christ. Tomorrow on Issues Etc., we'll continue our series on the words of Scripture, talking with Pastor Will Whedon about joy. What's the difference between just joy and happiness? And we'll also talk about the Old Testament patriarch, Jacob. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, offers ACT, SAT, and PSAT test prep, scholarship application classes, college and career counseling, and more. Hi, this is Lori Konsky, president of College Preparation Station. We have helped our students obtain more than $7 million in tuition scholarships in 12 years. Find out more at cpsprep.com. Let us help you create a vision and find your future. The College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, cpsprep.com. Trinity Orchard Farm is settled between two rivers showing the way to the water of life. For worship that is reverent, relevant, and refreshing like pure water, or for excellent education in a unique setting, check out our church and school. We're just five miles north of Highway 370 on Highway 94 in St. Charles County. Visit us on the web at trinityorchardfarm.com. That's trinityorchardfarm.com. Our phone number is 636-250-3350. Hey, Todd, what have our listeners noticed first when visiting the LPR studios? Definitely the small size and the dirt. Well, not anymore. Thanks to our friends at the Cleaning Authority. They've turned this man cave into a space that meets even our wives' approval. Whether it's our office or your home, the Cleaning Authority is your cleaning service provider in the St. Louis area. To schedule a free estimate or to find out more, visit thecleaningauthority.com. Thecleaningauthority.com. 
We know that you want to build your family on the right foundation from the very start, the foundation of Jesus Christ. Concordia Publishing House offers more than 8,000 products for churches, schools, and homes, dedicated customer service, and an experienced staff to help you focus on what matters most. Click to connect at cph.org. Concordia Publishing House, listening, responding, providing for God's people. Concordia Publishing House, cph.org.